Hi, welcome back. This is Carrie. And I'm Summer, and we are Hypoxia Podcast, and we are back today with For Honest History with Leo, our favorite historian. The month may be over, but we're not done talking about it. This is Summer enjoying the episode by myself, um, just to let you know that we had spoken to Leo at length about some additional um, topics related to Pride Month, and we wanted to go ahead and share those with you. Um, the pictures you're looking at right now are Carrie attending her first Pride event, which is wonderful. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go this year, but I'm so happy for her that she did, and she had such a wonderful time. And please stick around and listen to the rest of our honest history about Pride Month. And, uh, you know, I, I would really like for this country to get to a point in time where all these heritage months didn't really have to exist. But uh, unfortunately, they do. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting for me in particular when it comes to like, um, you know, especially like, you know, LGBTQ plus history of month and Pride Month, like everything that we see on June 1st and then everything that we see all the way into June 30th and then July 1st starts and, you know, Pride Month is over. And then all of a sudden, like everything is gone. Everything is gone. Like there's no more, there's nothing else to, to be sold in stores. There's no more commercials. Um, and if we're going to just keep compartmentalizing everything, like we're never going to make the progress that we think that we could make or that we should make. Um, we should be celebrating our different identities every day throughout the year. And uh, sure, maybe we want to put a special spotlight on it, you know, in the month of June, but um, we shouldn't go from nothing from 11 months to everything in 30 days and then back to nothing again for the next 11 months. Because uh, all we're doing then is just, you know, commodifying it and trying to make money off of it. Oh yes, since corporate since corporations got on board with pride, it's <laughs> changed things dramatically. And now we have to have discourse every year about how to what degree you have to hide your identity or your kink or whatever, and it's exhausting. Um, but it is there's a it since it has become since pride has become more mainstream, it's definitely created this uh, respectability <laughs> discourse that's that we've that we see in every other uh, movement in marginalized communities I'm like man there was one that I didn't have to have an argument about until the last few years <laughs> um, yeah I find it interesting when I talk to people who are anti um, everything they're just anti everything uh they're anti-happiness i think uh <laughs> is there's this idea in a lot of american people that i guess they think gay people haven't always been here or that people you know different genders like there's some this where does that misconception come from? Because like, I know our, that was part of what, I'm Choctaw, that was part of what we were. Um, we scandalized the French missionaries um, about, through a lot of things, really. But like, we believe that everybody has both masculine and feminine. Um, and um, yes, we have a gender binary, but it doesn't necessarily, always match up to your physical characteristics, right? It's what role you play. So yes, we there were people who had vaginas who were <laughs> warriors and, you know, and, and vice versa. So um, 
And even today, if you mention that today, like, you know, everybody has masculine and feminine. Like they're, they're fighting words to a lot of Americans, particularly American men. <laughs> but like if you ask what defines masculinity and what defines femininity, it almost, it's always like physical trait. And like if sure. you don't cry, if you're a man, you have to fix all the things. And if you're a woman, you cook and you clean and you, and it's just like skills that everybody should know. Like there's nothing that really defines like what is feminine, what is masculine. That's true. That's true. I've had I've had men who who criticize me because I work on my car. Apparently that's a man's thing. I don't know. I mean, if they can fix it better, they're welcome to come do it. <laughs> I just need it running. I don't really care who does it. Um, but yeah, you're right. A lot of it is and it's all based in that whole idea of toxic masculinity, which seems to be relatively new as far as I can tell, as far as how rigid and narrow the definition is. So like, why have do we have amnesia now about the, that things haven't always been this way? Like if you go back and look at like um, Greek history, like there's evidence of like homosexual relationships and lesbian relationships. That's where the term sapphic came from. Like <laughs> there's evidence like all the way back, like way back when. I'm sure Leo can do a better deal of telling, but. Oh, but remember, the evangelicals want to tell us that that is why Rome fell. Never mind the fact they existed for all of those years. And then under it only took a handful of years once they became a Christian nation to crumble. Yeah, which did uh, show like the United States what's like what could happen. But, you know, history is not real to them. It's not real, is it, <laughs> No, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, history and the way that we think of it really is a social construct. Um, it very rarely tells, like, it very rarely tells the entire story. It only gets, you know, one person's perspective. You know, and I think that that is um, an issue that we have just as, as humans, particularly, you know, anybody that's of any sort of dominant identity, that, like, we only tend to get the story from one group of people that keeps us comfortable, and that's about it. Um, it's it's always interesting thinking about you know all of this erasure like that's exactly what it is. Um, I mean, and that starts from you know the founding of this country, in which you know the Europeans really thought that they were coming to a a land that was desolate and completely wilderness and completely barren, and there was nothing here. Um, but we know that that's not true. We know that you know <laughs> that there was civilization that had been here for thousands and thousands of years that had built great civilizations. You know, civilizations of you know art and technology, and you know grew crops and had farms, and you know built stable houses you know all of that erasure is not on accident it's it's on purpose and so even when we think about you know how can we deny you know the the you know the gender identities and fluidities of different folks um i mean we've done it with everybody else since um i mean and even today like we talk about like the sort of like rigid definitions of what a man and a woman is and you know that that binary aspect of it but like even scientists know that gender is a spectrum it's not it's not an on-off switch. It's not like, hey, you know, you're a boy or you're a girl, but there are tons of identities that kind of fit with along, you know, along in that. I mean, even the term intersex. I mean, we have intersex athletes, intersex people that, you know, are all around this country, all around this world. Um, I read a stat, you know, at the beginning of the year, because I actually did a, a unit on the Olympics. Um, and in part of that, we talked about, you know, the controversy of intersex athletes and where they should be able to compete and that sort of thing. 
And uh, I read a stat in a couple of different places that basically said that intersex people are as, are as common as, you know, redheads. I mean, like if, if we think of them as, you know, commonplace and a part of American history, I mean, shit, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was a redhead. So like, <laughs> if we can think of, of redheads as being a part of this community, a part of this country, then intersex folks should be able to get the same sort of acknowledgement as well, because they're out there and just as much of, you know, um, abundance as redheads are. Um, but a part of it also is the fact that, you know, we would know a lot, a lot more people in history that were gender fluid or sexual identifying fluid if uh, we'd ever made a, a society where people felt comfortable to really be their true selves and not have to hide it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't really imagine what that's like. Like, I, I can't hide my blackness that's out there for better or for worse. But I, I can't imagine what that would be like for folks that had to hide you know, their orientation or hide, you know, their gender um, because it made their lives, you know, simply put, safer and less dangerous um, type of stresses that people had to live with in order to, to get, you know, things done. And the fact, you know, that they still did. I mean, what, what percentage of our, of our country, you know, identify this LGBTQ plus? I think it's somewhere between 10 and 20%. So are we to assume that like, all of a sudden, those, those magical folks throughout our history were just, you know, 10 to 20% of them weren't actually, you know, gender fluid or sexually fluid, that they just, it just didn't happen. Because uh, if we want to go ahead and believe that, then uh, that's exactly the reason why we are where we are in this country and why, you know, mm -hmm. learning authentic history is, um, one, so important, and two, why it's always been so hard. Because, you know, we are stuck trying to learn history that keeps people comfortable. And it's, uh, it's way past time to, to move past that. Yeah. I mean, in our culture, we believe, you know, buy or pan is the default and everybody on the extreme ends are the odd ones. So. I honestly, it's definitely more than 10 to 20%. <laughs> yeah. I think most people, like you said, I think it is the default for most people, but they just hide it. That's what I did <laughs> for a long time. Well, or won't even explore it, because think about how we were both raised, you know, in, in the evangelical community, and you're taught that that's not what it really is, or you're supposed to suppress it, or that's a sin. And so there's a lot of people who spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to pretend that that's not really what's happening. My family like, treated it weird when I would say, like, a celebrity was really pretty, like, if I talked about a female celebrity and said, oh, they look so pretty, like, I just want to, like, hang out, like, any kind of stuff like that, they would, like, what do you mean? Like, do you just want to be friends with them? Or do you mean, like, in a different kind of, and I'm like, no, just, like, I want to be friends with them. <laughs> oh, wow. They, they, <laughs> they were clarifying, huh? Yeah. My grandparents. Wow. A lot. And even at, like, my church that I went to, like, I think my youth group had like 20 to 30 kids in it at any given time and at least 10 of us <laughs> were gay or like some kind of LGBTQ like and we all hit it very well from like our youth minister and like our preacher like we were very good at hiding it and I didn't tell anybody I didn't really know I hit it but it's it's hard when you're like a kid trying to hide it. Yeah, and, and, and I really wish that like, you know, folks didn't have to, and, and even in particular like kids, like you should be allowed to explore, like there's nothing wrong with any of that. And then the worst part about it is that a lot of these folks that are gonna sit up here and, and be the biggest, 
you know, opponents of, you know, this sort of liberation and freedom. I mean, a lot of them might be doing it behind closed doors anyways, um, but they just want to go ahead and necessarily bring it out for their own issues. And, and they know that in a lot of ways that like, you know, being anti anything is, it's a moneymaker. It keeps them in power. It keeps them making money. It keeps them in political positions and that sort of thing. And we don't necessarily get to see how they live and, and nor do I want to. Um, but at the end of the day, like you can't necessarily, you know, criminalize the acts of, of certain groups of people when you might be doing that same shit behind closed doors too. And uh, I mean, stuff like that has come out, you know, throughout the years in this country. Um, and also think about, oh, go for it, Gary. I was, I was going to say that makes me think of like the abortion laws that are happening right now. Like, you know, all those politicians, like their wives, mistresses, daughters, whoever, still going to get the abortions, but nobody else can get them. That's bad. <laughs> like, it just drives me insane. <laughs> yep. One, uh, 100%. And, and even think about, you know, Pride Month and what that means for a lot of folks. Like, you know, I mean, it's also important that we go back to, to race and, and, and race is kind of like all roads lead back to racism in this country when we think about, you know, why things are the way that they are. Um, I mean, I, I know quite a few black and brown folks that, you know, take issue with even like, you know, the, the traditional, you know, pride flag because for them like that literally does not include them in it because a lot of these movements, you know, have used our labor and, and use our voices and use our bodies to kind of like, you know, take take the brunt of the criticism, but yet and still they get none of the credit and they get really none of the inclusion. And so um, again, that, that, that pride flag for a lot of black and brown folks does not necessarily mean the same thing that it means for, you know, white folks who, who really created that flag. Um, and we also know that there's a certain privilege in being, you know, white and LGBTQ plus compared to being, you know, black or brown and, and being of the same thing. Um, I mean, race falls into that because there is, you know, generational wealth that gets to hide and shield people from, from certain, you know, harsh realities. Um, you know, there are, there are ways in which, you know, white folks have more access to, you know, really being able to get surgeries that can go ahead and fortify who they really want to be as folks compared to the black and brown folks who have to continuously deal with, uh, not being able to afford things and still try to find ways to, to carve out a life for themselves. Um, and so like we would be, um, it would be unfortunate for us to, to, to go through, you know, this month and these heritage ideas, if we are not going to bring up race and bring up the privilege that, you know, a lot of folks have. And again, if it's, if it's really that hard for, for, you know, white folks who identify as LGBTQ plus, which it definitely is. Again, imagine what it's like for, for everybody else who, who doesn't have, you know, that same skin color that, that can't hide behind that or uh, can't easily just go ahead and hide it or uh, get surgeries in order to uh, correct it. And though, you know, the ways in which, you know, certain folks can't. And, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that I, I tend to think about as well. Um, you know, I believe the, the, the life expectancy for, you know, black trans women is 33 or 34 years old. Um, which, you know, if we look back in history, that is just about the, the age that uh, an enslaved person was expected to live back in the 1850s and 1830s. Um, so like, what progress have we really made? And uh, what does that progress really look like when, you know, black trans women live to the age of 33 or 34? Um, and what does that also say about, you know, toxic masculinity in, in every race and in every community and what that looks like. Um, and I'm sure, unfortunately, like we all know people that are probably in, in our lives that are 
deeply homophobic and, and deeply anti-trans. And it really does come from, you know, not having a decent education and not wanting to learn more and not wanting to be more open. And then also realizing that like some of these, you know, ridiculous misconceptions that, you know, LGBTQ plus folks have is, it's exactly what it is. I mean, they're, they're, it's fear mongering in order to get people to, uh, you know, stay against, which is, I mean, the ideas of them being hypersexual and hyperactive and that sort of thing, which is, you know, completely untrue and completely unfounded, but yet and still we use that in order to make sure that we can get these bathroom bills because, you know, you can't have a, a child in there with a, somebody who may be gay or lesbian or, or gender fluid, because if they are, then, you know, they're gonna get molested when, you know, I'm sorry, but like the majority of the folks that molest kids in this country, are uh, men, and in particular white men. But you know, we can't have that conversation because mm -hmm. then that's a different, that's a told, totally different conversation that we could have. I don't know is if there's been a resurgence or if it's just being easier to see now of toxic masculinity. Like, is it getting worse or is it just you can see it now? Thanks, Kevin Samuels. Um, I don't know, but either way, it's we, we're going in the wrong direction. I was listening to a podcast, or I heard it somewhere, but they talked about how it's always like a pendulum, how it swings to like heavy, like religious and like toxic masculinity, like base views where it has to be like man goes to work and woman goes and like stays at home and has kids. And then it'll swing to like the civil rights movement where everybody wants to fight for equality or equity, like whatever word it is it swings and then it'll go back and forth because people want to make the progress too much progress backwards go backwards and well i think what happens is we make progress and then we get comfortable and then we stop pushing and then those um those who have more positions of more privilege don't use that to continue advancing that and so the weight is falling on um people who are more vulnerable and there's only so much that can be done when it's just, you know, those small groups doing it. And so then that hate that was always there and that those oppressive ideas that were always there in, in that case, patriarchy is, you know, makes progress again. And so it's that pendulum because we don't keep mo that moving forward. But as long as it's left to the oppressed to fix the problem, it's going to be that way because we didn't create this fucking problem. It's really not ours to fix. I don't see it all getting better as long as the United States continues to exist, but that's where my jaded ass is right now. I'm just, I mean, I knew since, uh, I don't know, my undergrad when I started studying, when I was studying anthropology and, you know, civilizations and the general course they, generally, they usually take, like, I understood at that point that the U.S. was going to crash and burn, like it was headed that way. I just didn't really specifically think I was going to be around to watch it happen in real time. Not really loving this ride that I'm on. Just, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how much better things get. Um, just because I, I really do think that like, I mean, one, like you said, I mean, the issues that we have are not the people who they impact. It's not their jobs to go ahead and fix them. It's the people that are in power. And like, 
until we can actually get to that point where those folks in power actually see us as as humans, <laughs> then you know they're not going to. And in this country, like I mean, we deeply have a race problem, um, and that's where all of our issues stem from, really. And then after that, like I mean, sure, like we get into gender and things of that nature and privilege and class and and, and that sort of thing, but you know, it really does go back to to race. Like all roads lead back to it. And uh, until we can really get a, a firm hold on that, you know, anything else that we're doing is really just a window dressing. And uh, I mean, like you said, I mean, when it, when it comes to a lot of these, you know, ideas of movements and progress, um, we need to understand that progress, you know, it has to be, you know, the, the way that we agitate has to continuously operate, you know, as much as the systems of, of oppression operate against us, like our, are the ways in which we, we retaliate need to continuously move forward as well. Um, and I guess that's one of the things, like one of my issues with these sort of like celebratory months is that again, we pick it up on June 1st, drop it off on June 30th, and then we wait another 11 months and pick it up again on June 1st and ride it out for 30 days and keep going. But it has to be all year long. Same with black history and, you know, indigenous history and women's history. Like these sorts of, of movements have to continuously work simultaneously all year long. And we can't wait until, you know, that particular month to come up to either celebrate it or to bring back up issues or to get people re-engaged. Um, and I think for a lot of us, that is what ends up happening. We, we forget that, you know, because the people in power want change to take time, that we have to be willing to uh, continuously push in order to get that, that time to, uh, to move forward and move faster. Um, I think a lot of us are caught up in instant gratification and caught up in, you know, moments and not movements. You know, we have that one protest, you know, we, we have that one outcry, you know, we have those, you know, a couple of Twitter posts and that sort of thing and two days of this and three days of that or a week of this. Um, and then after that, you know, the next bad thing happens and we move on. Or, uh, you know, the next critical thing happens and, you know, it's time to go. Or, you know, we just get tired of it or the media gets tired of covering it. And uh, we have to continuously push and move forward. Um, as I think about all stuff, like I think about the Montgomery bus boycotts, like that didn't last a week. <laughs> it didn't last a month. And there was no hashtag. Like the Montgomery bus boycotts lasted for years. Like folks in, in Montgomery had to find rides to work and, and, you know, organize themselves, you know, for years in order to get anything out of that part. And uh, I think that's a part, unfortunately, that, you know, a lot of folks in this country aren't really invested in or, or, or really don't think that they can do or don't really have any concept of. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate because, um, you know, I really do think that progress could be made, but we have to, we have to come together and we also have to understand that, um, I think ultimately the progress that is going to be made is probably not going to happen, you know, in our lifetime, but like we can at least, you know, start the process and get it done for the next generation because it's not getting any easier. Um, I don't, and like you said, like, I don't know if, you know, toxic masculinity is getting worse or if we're just seeing it more. Um, I guess all I know is that it's just, it's always been a problem and it's always been bad. So uh, I don't know if there's any way for us to really chart that progress because, um, we see it constantly and all over the place. And a huge uptick of it and uh, younger men that I'm seeing. So that's concerning. All right, anything else? Resources or like things that we can use to educate ourselves better? Um, I think when it comes to like, I mean, I guess what we can do, I think it's really important for us to to really look within our communities and see like what like sort of like grassroots organizations are, are 
are doing things and see ways in which we can help them donate money or supplies or goods or support in that way. Um, I have begun over the last few years to kind of get away from a lot of the, the national sorts of um, organizations, just, I mean, especially when it comes to like, I mean, Black Lives Matter and that sort of stuff, like we kind of see what happened now. We kind of see what happens now with all that money, with that power. And unfortunately, you know, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so uh, to me, like I, I tend to try to give my money and time to small kind of grassroots organizations that are just kind of local. Cause I think that's where we can make the biggest amount of change and indifference. Um, you know, there, there's a, uh, a book that I that I read and that I use sometimes for for my history class when we want to talk about more about these issues. Um, matter of fact, let me go get it. Hold on. So, like, this is a there we go. One of the books that I that I use in my class that I take notes from and, and kind of help my kids out with, A Queer History of the United States. Um, it really does kind of talk about uh, the country and and uses a lot of the the basic, um, you know ideas of this country and some of the, the, the basic, uh, you know, kind of like flagpoles of, of what we identify this country as. And then we, and then it goes ahead and uses it from an LGBTQ plus standpoint of view um, that I think is also really important because it really does show and map out how, you know, and how LGBTQ plus folks have, have been on this continent and made contributions, you know, since the beginning, um, since the first time, you know, European step foot on this continent, like there, they have always been around and always been here and always been contributing. Um, and it's a way to make sure that like kids can keep that really in the forefront, especially for a lot of kids that identify in this way, because, you know, they need to see themselves in, in their curriculum. Um, we can find a lot of ways to show black kids in our curriculum, and we can find a lot of ways to show indigenous kids and Asian kids and Latinx kids. Um, but it's really hard to, to do that with LGBTQ plus because um you know there's no like identifier there's there's nothing physically that that would separate them and so like a lot of what we end up reading probably does include that but because we can't really make those connections it's really tougher for these kids to see themselves in it and uh this book by michael bronski does a, a really good job of it and it's uh it's an important read and i think that anybody that that wants to learn about the history of this country should start off by reading you know um you know more sort of like survey books about American history from uh, the vantage point of, of different marginalized folks. I mean, if that's where you want to really go ahead and, and get an understanding from, like you start there. And uh, I think that it'll make your, your experiences and, and your ideas around this country a lot more well-rounded and a lot more enriched. And, uh, you know, hopefully come out more knowledgeable and uh, more respectful and uh, a bit of a better human than before you actually started reading it. So A Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronski. Get it, go check it out free advertising. Is the book perfect? No, it's not perfect, but it really does make a, a big difference in what a lot of people know. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any of the uploads, be sure to turn on those notifications so you, uh, you will know as soon as those go up. Um, also like us on social media at Hypoxia Podcast, or uh, the easiest way is to go to our website hypoxia.com that's h-o-p-o-k-s-i-a.com and the links to all the socials and all the podcast feeds are right there and we just want to thank you all for sharing your time with us hanging out with us and we hope to um, spend more time with you in the future